hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Happy 400th episode of the Queer Money Podcast. Thank you, our listeners and watchers. We couldn't have done it without you. We appreciate also our sponsors. We couldn't have done it without you as well. After three iterations, two signs from the universe, and seven years, the Queer Money Podcast is still going and still the only show about financial success for queer people by queer people. What a better way to celebrate a platform to inspire marginalized communities to pursue financial abundance than with a woman who's doing just that, inspiring marginalized communities to pursue financial abundance. You're listening to Queer Money, episode number 400. And today we're talking with New York Times bestselling author, change agent, and social media rock star, Tori Dunlap, about her book, Financial Feminist, and her pursuit to democratize finance for women, people of color, the disabled, and queer people everywhere. And remember, hang on to the end of the show to find out how you could possibly win a copy of Tori's book. Now, on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So welcome, Tori Dunlap, to the Queer Money Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be on the other side because you have been kind enough to come on my show. And so, yeah, back together again. Nice to reciprocate. Yeah, totally. And we still get people who reach out to us from hearing us on your podcast. So I I love that. I was like, I think it came out in the summertime. Yeah, that was, was a little while ago. ago. <laughs> so it's great. So I have to ask, I read your book. Actually, I listened to it. And then I followed it. I went through it afterwards to go through all the, my notes and prepare for the interview. But listening to, you're, you're, you're probably the, well, the one book I've listened to so far, where actually I felt it was a better story and I really understood your perspective because you included your inflection and your nuance and the way you say things and hearing you drop the F-bombs and all that stuff went <laughs> as was amazing. I loved it. it was very entertaining. Thank you. Yeah. And it, you were kind enough to also contribute to my book. And yeah, I, I had a blast recording the audiobook. It was really, really fun. And yeah. I am really thrilled to hear you say that because that was really my intent is it's like, you're going to hear it in my voice exactly how I wanted it read. And that was one of the things, you know, when we were doing the book deal back and forth where they're like audiobook. And I was like, I will read it. I will not let somebody else read it. And so, yeah, it was really, it was a really, really fun experience. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely great. So, but I have to ask, cause you started off very early in the book, you talk about how you got into marketing and you thought you were going to follow the, 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 the typical career path and that you started working for a, a woman who at some point pulled you into the office and said that she was concerned that she was going to regret hiring you. And yep. I think it was shortly after that, you decided, okay, I'm going to get my ducks in a row and I'm going to get out of here. But and you in the book, you say you po- you politely gave her the F you and I'm out of here. How does it feel now that you've become so prolific and so successful in what you're doing? And I'm curious, have you heard from this boss? <laughs> no, I have not heard from her. I doubt I will ever hear from her. We, I only worked at that company for 
three, less than four months. It was very, very quick. I like started in October. I was gone. January 5th was my last day. I can still remember. And literally, yeah. So the story that you just told, which is the introduction to my book is about 10 days into working there. And that's calendar days, not days in the office. Mm -hmm. She called me into her office. She made me cry. And she told me I was like 23, 24. She told me that she was worried she was going to regret hiring me. And I was just crushed. And especially as someone, you know, who is like straight A student, likes to think of herself as like a high achiever. Like that was just awful. And that started the kind of the kind of relationship we had for the next three months. I have unfortunately had a couple toxic bosses. I've had some great bosses. I've had some not so great bosses. The great ones have reached out. The not so great ones have not. <laughs> so that tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I really resonated with your story because before David and I really, really went headfirst into growing debt-free guys and queer money, we were both working for W-2s and I had a, a toxic boss. We had already paid off our debt and we had our emergency savings and we kind of dabbled in debt-free guys, but we weren't like fully committed. And yeah. I, it was it was so transformative the day that David and I worked at the same company and we were going for a walk together midday. And I remember him looking at me and goes, you don't need to put up with this. We, we have our emergency savings. I have this decent job. Like if this is too much for you and you want to quit, do it. And it was just so freeing to be able to say, oh my God, that's totally true. And I gave the the polite F you to my boss too. And I, the, the, the best part of it was I was on a team meeting later that week or the following week after I'd given my notice and my boss's boss had asked on the call what my plans were, where, where I was going to go to next. And I said, I have no plans. I'm just taking some time off. Yeah. <laughs> I just felt like for my boss, it was just like, oh, he, he's not in a critical situation. He does not have to put up with my bullshit. <laughs> right. Right. And I think that that is the feeling that I want for every single person on this planet, but especially women, people of color, queer people, like any marginalized group, we are often in situations, I would say the default is for us to be in situations we're forced to be in rather than situations that we want to be in that respect us, that see us. And there is something so, yeah, so freeing, right? About the opportunity to go, nope, I'm not going to put up with this. Whether that's 100%. a relationship, whether that's a job, whether that like, I don't have to put up with this because I financially am able to walk away. And that to me is what a financial education or a financial foundation brings is mm -hmm. the ability to say fuck off or at least, you know, realize I'm not thriving here like I could be. And, you know, candidly before you and I, we started recording before we started recording, you know, I was a little teary talking about how difficult it is to run a business. And even you just saying like, it's freeing. I think, you know, that is a even great reminder to me right now of all of, you know, uh, it's really, really difficult to be an entrepreneur. It's really, really difficult to manage your own business. You have the most control though, versus having very little control when you work for somebody that you don't respect, who doesn't mm -hmm. see you respect you. And that's the feeling Yeah, I want for every person is, is the ability to leave and to put themselves in situations they want to be in rather than situations they're forced to be in. 100%. It's interesting you bring that up. And I'm glad, glad that you included queer people in that. We had Tom Brickman of The Frugal Gay on our podcast a while yeah. back. And he related the story of literally, he worked for a major movie theater chain and had been working there for a number of years. And literally, his boss said to him, we hire gay people or queer people specifically because they don't have children and we can work them to death. And that's Whoa. that was the, that was the one of the triggering moments for him that he's like, these people don't give a shit about us. 
I need to get my ducks in a row and get the hell out of here. And I think that's, we all need to look for those signs that there's a possibility that that's how you're being used and abused. Well, and in in addition to, which, first of all, horrible. Second, like the, the interesting thing though, is like, even if you realize your mistreatment, right, there's very little unless you do have that financial education, unless you do have resources that you can do about it. And we've also been told, member of any marginalized group, right? You're told to play small. And I talk about this more in my book, but like you're conditioned to do that. So even getting to the point where you're like, this treatment is unfair is a huge accomplishment, right? Mm -hmm. Or a huge step because we have been conditioned to accept worse treatment and to just be grateful for anything that we get. So it's one thing even to get to the point where you're like, this isn't right. And then two, of course, to have the resources to be able to do something about it. And I think that's why it's so frustrating to be a human right now, just in general, is that in this grand scheme of life and politics and society and systemic oppression, like there's very little we as individuals can do to control and to sway that. But of course, in theory, if we all come together, there's there's a certain amount of progress we can make. But yeah, I, I have often talked to friends of mine, to people in our community who, one, don't see the treatment as unfair, Two, if they finally get there, they're like, well, there's, there's, I have to, I have to stay here. I have to pay my bills. Right. Or I have been conditioned to believe that this is what I'm worth. I'm worth this mistreatment. Right. Or I, I am not worthy of more than that. And to anybody listening, I have to command you to believe that you are worthy of respect and good opportunities and all of the things that are capital B beautiful and capital G good. Absolutely. So that's a great segue into, into this next question here. Is how are you say in your book that money is being intentionally weaponized, especially for marginalized people? <laughs> so how is that happening exactly? And how does the patriarchy punish us for trying to improve our financial situation? So we do have the opportunity to say, this is no longer working for me. I'm going to move to something else. Yeah. This is something that was really delicate to write about because I didn't really see anybody else talking about it in this way. But I can only speak to my experience as a woman. I'm going to use a very gender binary, but when we raise boys and girls, right? What toys do we typically give them, right? We give boys Legos and trucks and things to build. And we teach them that their value to society or like the, the skills worth building are creative, are innovative, are like critical thinking, right? That's what we tell boys. What do we give girls? Dolls, easy bake ovens, right? Bridal veils. We live, we give a literal child another child to take care of, which is crazy to me, right? We hand a two-year-old girl a baby doll and we're like, here, mother this child, you child. So we're told as women that our, uh, you know, our contribution to society and is in how much we give and in how selfless we are and in not our own ingenuity, but in you know, lifting others and and giving to others. So what happens then when a woman has the audacity to pursue wealth for her own benefit? Well, she's told first that it's not her money, it's daddy's money, or it's her husband's money, or she's a gold digger. We tell her that she's wrong for pursuing wealth. We tell her she's greedy, right? This is back to the conditioning that happens, right? To keep people playing small is, oh, you should just be grateful for what you have. Why are you asking for more? Mm-hmm. And then we we weaponize that altruism, right? We're like, why aren't you donating more? Like, oh, you're you're not taking care of everybody else. That's selfish, right? And it's like, 
the pursuit of wealth to gain stability and safety and happiness for yourself is not a bad thing. We celebrate it for men, especially straight men, right? It's like, you know, men on a golf course with Rolexes and the Instagram comments are like, wow, you're doing well for yourself, bro. Congratulations. But of course, if I come out in a designer dress or, you know, I I am on this trip somewhere, right? The comments are not celebratory. (laughs) So it's just really, really interesting how the patriarchy teaches us altruism, especially as women. And then when they realize that we might not be controllable anymore, weaponizes that altruism to try to keep us controllable, right? Because that's really what it is. When you get to a point where you're financially stable, money makes you no longer controllable to anybody, right? And that's linked to what we were talking about before, right? It's fuck fuck off money, fuck you money. It, it makes you no longer controllable. And to the status quo, that is, that is a nightmare. And mm-hmm. I want to be the fucking patriarchy's worst nightmare. Like that's <laughs> that's my goal is to be the patriarchy's worst nightmare. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. I've seen some of your TikTok and I think that you probably are. (laughs) Hopefully, you know, I'm trying, but it's also, it's like, you know, it's internalized misogyny, just like internalized racism and everything else. Like, you know, you even notice it in your own internalized homophobia, right? Like you realize it in yourself. It it was so interesting. Like a lot of the comments from like women in my community, when I would talk about my accomplishments or I would talk about like our success as a business, they would be like, I used to like you, but now you're really braggy. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So what's, what's happened is you've been conditioned to see me as a threat to you, right? Because you're told there's one seat at the table. So we all fight each other, right? right. We were told there's one seat. And if some other woman or some other member of a marginalized group, right, is the is a person having success, suddenly it means less success for you, which of course isn't true. But like, that's the internalized misogyny of it is... You know, we're really uncomfortable with anybody of any marginalized group celebrating their success, owning the pursuit of wealth for their own purposes. And again, like, I don't want Jeff Bezos being celebrated for his pursuit of wealth, right? There's a difference of, of you know, I'm pursuing wealth to hopefully give opportunities to people to take care of myself and my community. And that's that's not inherently wrong or bad. It just is. It's right. It's how we're trying to navigate the system that exists. And yet there's there's so much internalized stuff going on about how we expect people to pursue money or not pursue money, how we expect people to talk about money or not talk about money. It's just really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I I appreciate you bringing up this idea of internalizing it and internalizing this misogyny and this approach to money, because as you were talking about, I was thinking about the way that many queer people think about themselves and about money. A lot of times we are championed as givers, right? A lot of women in the queer community go into service type industry. And I'm not talking about being a waiter or a pole dancer or something like that, right? I'm talking about you become a nurse, you become a therapist, you do social work, these kinds of things. And and we're kind of conditioned into believing that these are the right and appropriate jobs. And I even see it within the community where you're disparaged by members of the community if you're not giving to the right shelters, to the right yeah. organizations. You're not living in a outwardly 
proven impoverished life. And I never really tied that back to this idea that that is actually what the patriarchy wants us to think that this is what we deserve. And then you look at people in the queer community who are successful, and oftentimes they are held out as capitalists and we should tear them down and eat the rich. And these are the bad people within our community. We've had this discussion of capitalism versus anti-capitalism, but that's not necessarily where I'm heading here. Just we might be adopting what we are told we should be fighting against. And it's sometimes it's so we're so unaware that we've been conditioned. It's kind of I'm going back maybe to the even to the four agreements from Paulo Coelho. Miguel Ruiz. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we kind of learn these agreements as we grow up. This is where you fit into society. You need to live this life. You you need to speak this language, live this religion, find this job, blah, 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 all this crap. And it is, I mean, we don't, we didn't have to go back more than a couple of decades. And we know that men were, straight men were in control of all of it. So why do we think all of a sudden we're free of that? Yeah. And again, you, you both thoughtfully said in my book, this feeling that you had early in your debt payoff journey to show up at you know, events, live auctions for these charities and give of yourself. But yet you're, you know, it's kind of like cobbler shoes, right? Like your own shoes were falling apart. And yeah, I, I think that that's the thing that I don't see enough people talking about is it's like what happens when a member of any marginalized group starts to pursue money is you are told it's selfish. Mm-hmm. And me being financially stable as a woman in a patriarchal world is an act of protest before I do anything, right? Just like a black woman resting, act of protest, queer people being able to be safe and financially stable, like act of protest, right? Before I've done anything. And we're also, again, the the weaponized altruism is sacrifice yourself so that you are depleted and you have no energy to fight the system that exists because you're too busy taking care of everybody else. And so in the book and in our work, we really we talk about practicing airplane finances, which is put on your own oxygen mask before helping others, right? Because if you try to help somebody else on an airplane when it's going down and there's no air, you're both dead. Right. <laughs> like you're both dead. As opposed to, well, if I can put on my oxygen mask, if I can take care of myself, then I can, you know, pour from a full cup, but also start to create a plane where everybody gets an oxygen mask and it's not just a privilege for a select few. So you talked about, you know, capitalism, anti-capitalism. I am not pro-capitalism. Like, don't love it. Like, and this is another thing that if, you know, people haven't delved far into my work, they're like, oh, she just wants money, like, end all be all. And I'm like, no, this is the system that currently exists right now. And while we work to change it, we still have to pay our rent. And we still have to take care of ourselves. And so I think that one of the lies we're being fed, well, intentionally, especially like, you know, in left politics is it's like, oh, you know, don't participate in the system. Just say, you know, just don't Mm -hmm. do it. And I'm like, here's the thing, though, is unless you completely go off the grid, that's not feasible for somebody. Right. And you have to again, you have to pay your rent and you have to do all these things. And I don't like the system that exists either. But this is the one we have right now. And in order to start changing it, I need you to be literally safe. I need you to be stable. I need you to have, you know, beautiful things so that you can feel equipped with your full arsenal to start changing the communities around you. Absolutely. As you were talking there, it reminded me of a talk that Oprah, it wasn't a talk, it was a Q&A that she gave at, I think, Stanford. 
several years ago. And the interviewer asked her, how do you feel going into these meetings with all these men? And Oprah clarified, like, well, I go into all these meetings and it's typically all white men. And she goes, I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Because here I am, this black woman who is the boss of this entire room always, because everywhere I go, I'm the boss. (laughs) It was like to have that kind of power is to your point is a form of tearing down the patriarchy is a form of protest because it completely ruffles their feathers and and changes the dynamic of every boardroom that she's in. Yeah. And it's so interesting, again, when you do start to have some sort of success, right? And you are feeling confident that then they double down on you, Mm -hmm. right? You were talking about before of like, okay, I am feeling financially stable. Okay, I'm going to ask for a raise because I am not getting compensated well. And then the response is like, you're being a bitch, right? Like (laughs) you should just be grateful. Like, why are you asking for more money, right? And of course, Oprah is in this upper echelon where like, you know, she's fucking Oprah. But it is like, you know, I I know a bit about her career and as she worked up, right? and, And started demanding better, people were really uncomfortable. People Mm -hmm. were really uncomfortable when she started to demand better. And I think ultimately, like what I've just realized in general is if you're a member of a marginalized group, nothing you say is going to be like a hundred percent okay with everybody. Like no one's going to like what you do. Right. And so you may as well just live the thing that feels right for you, does the least harm for everybody else and works to navigate this really fucked up system to the best of your ability. Yeah, it's just not easy being a change engine, right? It ruffles no. a lot of feathers. <laughs> it's just, just existing in general. It's really hard. But yeah, and it's also, you know, you, you just you just do the best you can. Like the thing that really I came I kept coming back to when I was writing the book, I had like this whole like internal crisis about nine months in where I was like, what's the point of this? Like, what's the point of writing this? Capitalism still exists. Like racism, sexism, ableism, homophobic, like all of these things still exist. Like, what is this doing? what is this doing? And it was like, it's doing the little bit I can right now. <laughs> like, I, I know that this book will be impactful. It already is. It's also just, you know, this, this leveling of like, these problems are so much bigger than us. But like, the only change that has come is from a group of dedicated individuals who are like, okay, we're going to do what we can. So I think, that's the other part is like, you look at capitalism, you look at all of this and you're like, I don't, I, this feels so overwhelming. So I'm just going to ditch. It's the same with personal finance, right? Like, oh, this is so overwhelming. And like, I'm not going to be able to get ahead. So I'm just not going to do anything. And it's like, no, we got to do something. Even if Mm -hmm. it's just really tiny, we got to do something because yeah, I want you to live the best life that you possibly can. I want you to live a whole rich, beautiful life. And so, yeah, very easy to get overwhelmed at times with people's expectations of us, with society's expectation of us, and also existing in the system that is so inequitable. We do what we can. Yeah, 100%. But somebody's got to plant the the oak tree seed for the oak tree 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's finally the big glorious oak tree that we all love. So let me dial back just a little bit. You say in the book that 90% of how-to articles geared towards women about personal finance or centered around saving money. And two-thirds of them label women's spending as excessive. So how is financial advice geared towards women different than that of men? And how have you tried to approach this differently? And the New York Times number one bestseller, Financial Feminist. Oh, hey, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you released the I'm video. I'm literally tossing my hair back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the entire thesis of my book. Okay. Perfect example, because I like concrete examples, right? When you Google how to save money 2023, the advice for men is expansion, right? 
This links back to what we were talking about earlier, right? It is expansion. It is growth. It is self-development, right? It is invest in real estate, invest in the stock market, ask for a raise, right? Passive income, right? Like that is, that is the advice for men. What is the advice for women? Shrink, spend less money. That do your person it, you fucking cow. Like that's literally like what it feels like is it's like, here are five meals you can make under $5. And I'm like, what, what the fuck is this? The, the advice for women is stop spending money on quote frivolous things. And the very frivolous things they're talking about are the things that are innately feminine. Lattes, manicures, purses, not NFL season tickets or golf clubs, question mark. Doesn't make any sense to me, right? So the advice for men, one, they don't get shamed for their spending. And two, it is expansion, right? It's playing bigger. It's making more money, which is kind of at a certain point, like you can always make more money, right? Mm -hmm. Now there's, there, of course, that's with an asterisk of like systemic oppression asterisks, but like right. you can make more money. There's only so much you can cut, right? You, again, still have to pay rent. You still have to, you still have to buy groceries. You still have to take your children to daycare, right? Like there's certain things that you will not be able to cut anymore. And the very things that, you know, they say you should cut are the things that make life enjoyable and worth living, mm -hmm. right? travel, the occasional latte, the occasional nice thing to get through this really shitty thing we call life. Like it's so gendered. And the advice again is, is not here's what a Roth IRA is. Here's how to negotiate your salary. It is deprive yourself. So you're miserable. Mm -hmm. So you can't fight back against the patriarchy. So yes, there is certain levels of, of spending optimization we can do. I have an entire chapter in my book about mindful spending. It doesn't mean like cutting things you love. It just means being more strategic about where your money goes and making sure it can give you the most value for you. But you also have to couple that with the things that are really about wealth building, right? Again, the investing, the negotiating your salary or finding a better paying job. And we know actually statistically for heterosexual couples, the split is still very gendered. Women handle mm -hmm. the day-to-day -day finances, right? The budgeting, the coupon clipping, right? The grocery shopping, the men are handling the wealth building. And in order for us to really see financial change, we have to, one, start talking about money differently and not just be like, again, shrink yourself, spend less money, hate your life. But also, yeah, but also teach marginalized groups. Okay, here's what investing is and here's how to do it. Here's how to negotiate your salary. And then third, make, you know, workplaces that actually respond well when you present data to negotiate mm -hmm. your salary, create places that you can invest as ethically as you you'd like to be. So, yeah, that was the, one of the things in my research that I wasn't surprised by, but like I had to take more breaks for this book than I thought to just like scream into a pillow. <laughs> it's just like screw just walk straight into the ocean like it was just there was Not so a glass of wine right <laughs> yeah yeah there were so many of these moments where i'm like oh god this is so gendered this mm -hmm. is so gendered in a way that we haven't fully unpacked yet because it's again again so ingrained it's so mm -hmm. normalized right yeah. it's interesting you bring this up because i'm fairly active under our debt-free guys brand on twitter and we share, a, I share a lot of content around real estate investing because that's something that we're starting to get into. And one of the things that I find over and over and over again is that there are like 
three or four women out there talking about real estate investing. And I'm like, from time to time, someone will share, someone will create this thread and it will be all these people you should be following. And I'm oh, like, where are the women on this list? Crazy. <laughs> where are the women on this list? There's no women on this list. Or even just somebody who isn't a <laughs> cisgendered straight white man. Like, yeah, yeah there was, what was it Graham Stevens the other day, like a couple of weeks ago was like, here are 10 money books to read. No women. I don't think there were, there was maybe one black man, very few people of color, no, no women of color. I don't think anybody was queer. I was just like, oh, it infuriates me because that's, that's the other thing about like the financial, even, you know, we all know you and I, and it's just so interesting that even the very like sphere of personal finance, it's still, it's still so backwards. And the people that are known as personal finance experts, right? Susie Orman, yes, queer woman has made such good progress, I think, for many, many women and queer folks in particular. But like, still, advice is super shaming, right? Mm -hmm. Rich dad, poor dad, Dave Ramsey, like all of these people, they're not acknowledging systemic oppression in the way that they should and not acknowledging nuance. And yes, the very people talking about like real estate or investing or, you know, the people you should follow. It's like, it's just an echo chamber. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's I, I've never shared this before. So this will be uncomfortable, but David and I are included on a lot of lists of brands that you should follow in the personal finance space. We were both just, you know, included on the, and that for the streets 2023 influencer. And sometimes I question the authenticity of that because we're still by and large the only or the biggest LGBTQ brand in personal finance. So I'm, I sometimes question like, are you just being inclusive and that's great? Or are we actually one of the top 25 that you should be following? You know, And I, we've been trying to get more and more LGBTQ people into this space to share their message because obviously we're speaking from a very narrow voice, cis, gay, white men. And we can't express everybody else's stories and and, and experiences. So I just, I, I kind of get frustrated with that. Like, how do we get more people into the space to start talking about it? How do we get more women? We know that there are more real estate investors and real estate women investors who are, who are talking about it. How do we get them more well, space I, to I, be able to talk and, and visibility? I sometimes wonder if similar to what you were mentioning before is there's a level of shame. There's a level of feeling insecure. There's a level of uh, I'm going to play it small. I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it well and I'm just taking care of myself. But if I get out there and talk about it, then I'm going to deal with the shit that comes from that side of the personal finance echo chamber. I mean, you are. You are. Yeah. And like that's that's the hard part is it's (laughs) how much do I want to say? (laughs) <laughs> when Say you're a business all. owner, like, well, we were talking about this before. Being a business owner is really hard. Being a public person is is increasingly difficult. And again, I'm like very, you know, I'm a personal finance educator. I'm not Oprah, Taylor Swift, or any of these people who like have, have an actual issue with this. But it is, you know, when you open yourself up to all of, you know, celebrating your opportunities there's going to be feedback. Let's call it of of people who have a lot of opinions, right? <laughs> And sometimes their their feedback might hit you where it hurts. And sometimes it's just like, okay, I don't need to listen to that. But that is that is the thing. I often wonder how much, quote, feedback would I get if I was a cisgendered straight white man? I think yeah. a lot less, a lot less. And so, you know, that is the interesting thing too, is it's like, okay, if I'm out here celebrating my accomplishments and starting to become, you know, an expert in my space, what's the downside of that? You right. know? 
what percentage of the feedback, because I think you were in PR apparently, <laughs> what feedback do you tend to, to get from cis, white, straight women, do you think? I mean, it's, sure, that's yeah. probably hard to estimate, but what percentage of that would you say? Uh, it's hard to say. It's really interesting. It's, it's something that I've grappled with personally because my public persona is very fuck it all. Like, you want to come at me? Fine. Uh, internally, I'm a little, little bean. I'm very soft. And I'm just like, I want everybody to like me and respect me and just see me for the person I am and making nuanced decisions that are really difficult. And sometimes I'm going to fuck up and like, I hope you have the grace for me to allow that. And like, that's really difficult. So some of the feedback, yeah, is, is internalized misogyny or is just like really just shitty. And some of the other feedback is stuff that I worry about where am I acknowledging my privilege enough? Am I doing everything I can be doing with the platform that I I have so it's that's where I think it's difficult is it's like it's a good chunk of yeah let's call it feedback but it's like two percent the most of it is like you've changed my life which is so sweet or like mm-hmm. you know I've gotten out of debt or I've saved money or I've negotiated my salary and I feel confident that truly that's probably more like 99 percent just for me as the real life Leslie Nope who like wants everybody to like her I think that that one percent feels really loud often And there's also just like, especially feedback on business decisions. So we get a lot of feedback about how we run our business. And that's really, really tricky because it's all feedback from people who have never run a business before. And I'm like, I'm like, here's the thing is it's like, I see you, I hear you. I I probably am thinking the same thing you are. However, I cannot say it. I have contracts. I have certain legal hoops I have to jump through. I also can't make the decisions maybe that you want you want to make or that even I would like to make in theory because I have to pay people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like that's the interesting thing we were talking about before of financial freedom. Like <laughs> me, even me as an entrepreneur, like I'm starting to find out more and more that, you know, all of the things that felt like a nine to five that I was beholden to, I'm starting to feel a little bit in my own company. Which again, whole thing that I haven't processed fully. But yeah, I think a lot of the feedback, yeah, the vast 99% is just lovely and supportive. That 1%, I would say half that 1% is not accurate at all. And the other half, although I don't know if it's entirely fair, is the thing that feels really concerning to me because it's what I'm personally most worried about. It's like what keeps me up at night of like, am I doing right by people? The, the white and, guilt of just like existing and being a white person, like like, am I doing enough to to you know navigate that? So, I'm kind of rambling here. Clearly, I'm processing a lot of shit. It, at least yeah, you're asking really the question. You're yeah, asking exactly. the question because there are a lot Trying of people <laughs> who don't feel that they 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 think it's beneath themselves to ask that question, and typically that's cis straight white men. So, <laughs> not all of them, but a lot of them do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and again, I think back to the the point you know all of us were making is it's like i i don't know how much again i put feedback that's that's my kind word for it like i don't know how much of that would come my way if my gender identity was different i I don't think there would be nearly as much so yeah it's just it's it's always it's always the patriarchy isn't it (laughs) (laughs) well so let's deviate a little bit and talk about some of the women whose shoulders you're standing on Um, i loved in your book i didn't know about these women and so I definitely want to make sure we cover them in this episode here. Who were Victoria Woodhall and Tennessee Kaplan, and how did their stories represent the patriarchy's dominance in finance? Yeah, 
this was something I I even didn't know, but I was starting to research the book and my lovely research assistant, Ariel, pulled a couple of these people. These are women like late 1800s, early 1900s who were like champions on the stock market and running for president before. Like, I didn't know that we had a woman running for president back in like, I think it was 1894 or something like that. Like, it's crazy. But basically they were either stockbrokers or women who were just trying to champion both you know voting rights and rights of women but also specifically having a voice in the financial sphere mm. and as you may assume because we've very rarely heard of these women history was not kind to them right. they were labeled both in their time and after as shrews as hysterical as you know basically just crazy and i think that it's again so interesting tried to keep them controllable. They were Mm -hmm. starting to get their own money, starting to have a voice, starting to become uncontrollable. So what happened, they were labeled crazy. And it's, it's so interesting to know that this has again been going on forever, but specifically that the attempts keep happening, right? Mm -hmm. And the progress, even tiny, and even if that progress is dampened or hurt by people basically being shitty there there is some sort of you know tiny movement towards equality or towards you know a better foundation mm-hmm. and so yeah i would we only get to talk about them very briefly in my book but yeah look them up they were incredible and i think at one point i'm trying to remember which one it was i think it was victoria she like sued i think the company or the stockbrokers because she was like you've taken away my livelihood from myself and my my daughter and so basically i'm going to sue you for all the money you're losing us and like mm-hmm. it's just it's it's incredible but again had i even had no idea i had no idea these women existed yeah, I feel like there's a book right there, the the original women in personal finance. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and even like I remember back in 2020, I think this is a failing of my school system along with many others. I had no idea about Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. Yes. I had no idea uh-huh. it was burned down, right? Like yep. there was there's so many moments of history, of course, where, you know, you realize who's telling it and you realize how it's being taught and that that there was again so much attempts at progress and then Again, people are thriving. People that makes people uncomfortable. It makes the patriarchy uncomfortable. Yeah. Do you want to know what's so crazy about no, there's lots of things. One thing that's so crazy about Black Wall Street was a couple of years ago we interviewed Dr. Hannibal B. Johnson, who wrote several books about Black Wall Street. And in the 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 preparation for publishing that episode, we did a poll in our Facebook group and we asked how many people in the Facebook group were familiar with Black Wall Street. And there was a one of the respondents was a black man who said he went to school at Tulsa High School, grew up in Tulsa. His parents were the victims of Black okay. Wall Street, and he had never heard of that. Wow. And I was like, how do you live in the heart of it? And how do you go to the school in the heart of it? And you've never been taught about it. Now, I understand he, he elaborated that his, for his grandparents, it was too much to revisit. And I totally yeah. get that. But how the school system would fail, the people that... that we're still in that community is beyond me. Yeah. Well, it's very, you know, Thanksgiving, right? It's like, oh, the pilgrims and the, the indigenous people sat down together for a meal. And I'm like, no, we gave them smallpox blankets. Like, you know, it's just, it's so interesting. At the amount of times, take a shot every time I say it's so interesting, but it's just, it's, it's crazy that, yeah, what history repeats and remembers. And even the fact that I am in this 
you know, this industry and I had no idea she existed or they existed. Yeah. It's just, it's just baffling. Talk about something that we didn't know existed until a couple of months ago. We did an episode recently on episode 386, where we talked about how influencers like, like Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey are now working with an organization called Kingdom Advisors, who are then advising their clients to put the charitable portion of their portfolios into donor advised funds specifically designed to target LGBTQ plus people. With your perspective and your worldview on personal finance for cis white men and the marginalized communities, what thoughts do you have on that? Not surprised, (laughs) considering Dave Ramsey's previous actions. If you have followed me for a second, you know that he is my nemesis. You know that I call him he who must not be named or I'll star out his his vowels in his name. Yeah, for many reasons, he is not my favorite person. I have heard about this. I haven't delved into it. I'm not surprised. It's, yeah, that's fucking shitty. I don't know. What else do you know about it? Because I would I would love to learn a little bit. Well, it, 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 so what we found in our research was that this, this is sort of the the funnel all the way from yeah. the beginning of listening to my podcast and the churches I'm going to go to and speak at to try to get you into my my ecosystem. Eventually, I'll get you to these certified kingdom advisors, and then eventually we'll get your money into these specifically anti-LGBTQ donor advice funds that are then yeah, funding wow. the anti-LGBTQ legislation that, from our perspective in our community, we're all of a sudden like, where did these 409 laws or whatever they are right now, where did they come from? Mm. Well, they've been they've been preparing for this for years and we're just now playing catch up. And so I was curious, wow. like from your perspective and what you know about the patriarchy, especially in finances, like what's your perspective on this? And also what sort of similarities, if anything, do you see with the oppression in finance of LGBTQ plus people, ableism, racism, misogyny, and all that? Yeah. And I'm just going to throw in there. It's not just LGBT people because mm. these are also the same lawyers that wrote the amicus brief that tore down Roe v. Wade. These are this this is a yeah. concentrated group of people that are focusing on this is the way and the way is white Christian nationalism. And we yes. we we feel like and and from what we have gathered is that there are a lot of people who think that they're doing the right thing because they are good-hearted Christian people. And this is what my financial advisor tells me to do. This is, I'm supporting adoption. I'm supporting food banks. I'm supporting all these great things. But what they don't realize is that's like 10% of the sliver of where the money goes. A massive chunk of that money goes to these organizations that are actually employing lawyers, building up politicians, putting boots on the ground, occupying space in front of all of these people to block the progress that we're making. Yeah. Oh, Dave Ramsey in particular has weaponized his version of Christianity in order to make money and in order to shame people, really. The fact that Financial Peace University is taught in so many church communities, specifically evangelical church communities, has always alarmed me. I actually, on an episode of my podcast with Gabe Dunn, who host bad with money they and i read a a dave ramsey book and i had never actually sat down and read one and it is just alarming the amount of bible verses the amount of like 
this is God's plan for me. Like, it's just really interesting, really interesting to hear that language, but it's, yeah, it's alarming. This goes back to, it's so diff. It's a full-time job to understand and learn about everything that's going on with either what you choose to invest in, what you choose to buy, mm-hmm. right? Like that is a full-time job. So these individuals who have just been told by their well-meaning parents or their well-meaning church members who are like, yeah, Dave Ramsey's program worked for me. And they're like, okay, great. Like, I don't necessarily blame those individuals because it is a it is a very difficult task to one, decide I'm going to investigate every every decision I make with my money. But two, to then like say, I'm not going to do this. Especially when, again, these well-meaning people are marketing very back-channel-y the promotion of anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric, but publicly are like, I'm just going to help you save money. Mm-hmm. So that's one problem is it's just really difficult. And I, again, mentioned this in my book to figure out, okay, how do I not contribute to the ozone layer and not you know purchase my clothes from places that aren't going to use child labor? And also, like that's just really difficult. Mm-hmm. But two, I think the really the bigger problem is we have these very specific choices that are being made by folks like Dave Ramsey, but in a very veiled, non-transparent way. Right. And that for me is where I take the most the most issue is that he has used his platform and continues to use his platform to promote his specific agenda, which is yeah anti-lgbtq he has fired people for getting pregnant out of wedlock he has fired queer people from his company it's just it's a mess yeah you've given me some more reading and research to do but woof i didn't realize it was that bad (laughs) i have some notes i can share with you great (laughs) great and it's again it's really hard to navigate capitalism and if you yeah, typically white people, well-meaning white people who are like, I'm I'm just I'm learning how to get out of debt and this program works because still like this happened a couple a couple weeks ago. This like very well-known like beauty influencer who I've been following for like 3 years just randomly posted, I don't think it was sponsored, just a like, oh, we're working to get out of debt and we're trying to be more transparent and we use this like financial peace or baby step program by Dave Ramsey and I was like <gasps> No. no. And so I went to the comments and I was like, no, 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 no. Please don't, please don't do this. And they blocked me, which is fine. Uh, uh, because I was just like, <laughs> I was like, please don't, please don't, please don't. I love you. I love your content. Don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> but like, that's the person that everybody knows. He's the debt guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, we'll, we'll go to, we'll go to Dave Ramsey. And there's plenty of people like, this is going down such a rabbit hole. Like I love Pablo Neruda's poems. And then I Google Pablo Neruda like six months ago. And I'm like, oh, he sexually assaulted a woman like early mm. in his like. So it's just like, it's just so hard <laughs> to yeah. consume anything. And to also, again, to navigate the system to the best of our ability. So I, I if you are a willing participant, in Dave Ramsey, who knows all of this. Yes, that's, that's an issue. Thing. Yeah, right. But I think a lot of these people, he's just been told that he've been told that he's the guy. He's the guy you go to. What I take more issue with is the fact that he is doing all of this like sly shit behind the scenes that no one's seeing. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know that's why I loved your book. It, 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 even for me, who I feel <laughs> like <laughs> I that was like a nice little like okay, Tori, <laughs> let's get back on track here. <laughs> no, absolutely. This is what I was looking for. There were there were elements of the book that I thought I was. 
I, that I, that surprised me. I, I thought I it was more educated and more aware. And there are elements that it, you highlighted in the book that I had no clue about. And that's why I think it's it'd be a good read for all of our listeners. So with that, how can our listeners get a copy of your book? How can they connect with you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for your work. I am Her First 100K on all of the socials and HerFirst100K.com. I host the Financial Feminist Podcast where you can find our, our lovely interview with you all. And the Financial Feminist book will also, you are featured wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get your books. Thank you for all of your love and support. Of course. Thank yes. you. And thank you for being so inclusive in your book. You you included so many people from different backgrounds and stories and histories. And I just thought it was wonderful to hear everybody's unique perspective. And I have not heard that in another finance book to date anyway. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Something we did very intentionally. I didn't want to just hear from me the whole time. So, um, <laughs> I'm tired yeah. of hearing myself talk. <laughs> yeah. It was important to hear from from diverse perspectives. And also like I have I have learned so much from you all and and from other experts in the field. And it's just, yeah, if I was going to write a book about it, well, it can't just be me. So Absolutely. thank you. And so for our listeners and viewers, if you hang on to the end, we'll tell you how you might be able to get a free copy of Tori's book. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Wow, Tori, thank you very much for an amazing interview. Thank you for your time and everything that you are doing for people everywhere, including the queer community. For you, our listeners, thank you again for listening to another episode. Here's your Queer Money Takeaway. It's an easy one go get her book. Get a copy of Financial Feminist, Overcome the Patriarchy Bullshit to Master Your Money and Build the Life You Love. For your chance to possibly win a free copy of Tori's book and not have to pay for it, subscribe to the Queer Money Podcast email list available in the link in your podcast player. Then join us this Thursday when we talk about the most affordable LGBTQ-friendly city to live in South Dakota. And next Tuesday when we talk with Tony Award winner, manifesting and mindset coach Nick Demas for tips on how you can manifest more money into your life. Thanks again and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.